Hi. <laughs> We're going to read um, uh, Exodus chapter 3. It's on page 56 of your pew Bibles, and I'm going to try really hard not to mess up all these words in here. <laughs> Um, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that through the bush, wait, that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. (laughs) And now the (laughs) cry... And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go, assemble the leaders, no, the elders of Israel, and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles. Wait. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold 
and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Thanks. Can we just give her a hand? It's fantastic. For those of you who don't know, that exceptionally sweet, beautiful woman who just read the scripture is my wife. And you don't know how far she's come standing up here and reading that. I remember at our last church where I was the music minister, I was there late one night, like 1130 at night, you know, checking sound equipment and this sort of, she was with me. There was nobody else in the church. And I asked her to, to, to check one of the microphones up on stage, and she was terrified. There's nobody there. So here she is, reading in front of all of you. So, well done, babe. Stuck. Stuck. What comes to mind when you hear the word stuck? I know... Uh, for myself, I hear the word, <coughs> the word stuck, and I remember hearing my son, Caleb, my three-year-old now, saying from upstairs, Daddy, I'm stuck, and I, I ran up the stairs, and he had, cr- he had walked behind his crib to get a toy that had rolled under there, and he couldn't get out. Daddy, I'm stuck. Stuck. What comes to mind when you hear that word? I, <coughs> I, I remember a fateful camping trip with my family when I was a child. We were camping out in Wyoming, and we, we, there was a season in our lives where we went camping quite regularly, and we towed a camper trailer, and we towed it with a, with a station wagon. Um, now, one of the things you need to understand is that my mom is from Indiana. She is the daughter of a high school principal and an insurance salesman. My father is from Australia, but not the Crocodile Dundee kind of Australia. Uh, he was the son of a violinist and an opera singer, lived in the city, uh, if anything in Australia really qualifies as a city. But the point is, is that when we, when we came out to Wyoming, we were the first in the Hanley line to go camping. Like, we, this was, we were chartering new territory for the Hanleys. And, and we learned some things. You know, we... we I mean, we, we towed the camper trailer with a number of different vehicles over the years, some SUVs, a Bronco 2, um, some, some sort of Mazda, which I, I don't even remember what kind of Mazda SUV it was. Uh, I think it went out of production, and I understand why. We owned it for three months, and we're driving along, and the transmission fell out onto the floor, literally onto the ground, the transmission fell out. So I, they don't even make this one anymore. Anyway, we had a number of different models that we towed our camper trailer with, but the first one that we told with was a station wagon. And I think, I think that my brother, for example, he still lives out west. And see, he's learned, right? He's learned. He owns a Ford F-150, right? Because this is not going to happen to him. He remembers what happened when he was 15 years old. And we went camping and we were towing our trailer <clears throat> down the last leg of the, the tra- of the route that we take to get to the camping area. And it's this little dirt road that takes us to our, our favorite camping spot on the Platte River, our favorite dirt road. And you can imagine what happened. It had rained and, and all of this, and we got stuck. And I remember my brother spent the better part of the day, about 15 years old, just digging, digging with his hands. We didn't have any tools. Hanleys aren't allowed to use tools. It's too dangerous. We end up hurting ourselves. So he just had to use his hands 
and just dug and dug. And, you know, we tried everything. We rocked the car. We pushed the car. My dad would get frustrated and would, would floor it, you know, and, and that wouldn't really do anything. And it took us about a day to get the, this out. We were stuck. What comes to your mind when you hear that word? Stuck. Because I suspect that for many of us, this whole camping incident that we had serves as a parable for life. For many of us, it serves as a parable for life, that there are aspects of our lives. Are there areas in your life where you feel like you're just spinning your wheels? Are there areas of your life where you feel like you're just banging your head against the wall? Are there areas of your life where you just feel stuck? Maybe you're financially stuck. You feel like you're just spinning your wheels. Maybe you're in a career that just seems like it's, it's going nowhere, that your friends and your coworkers, they're zipping by on the highway, and you're on the side of the highway, and you're stuck. How many of you, maybe there's, there's something in your own life, some sort of brokenness in your own life, or perhaps... Perhaps the result of someone else's sin, brokenness in your life that you're stuck in. Maybe you're stuck in your own sin, in your own patterns of life that you know are not healthy and are damaging and destructive, but you can't get out of it, you're stuck. We're continuing in our series called The Story. The basic thesis of this whole series is that if you want to understand any passage in the Bible... You've got to understand how it fits into the story, the overarching narrative of Scripture, that the Bible is not primarily an instruction manual for life. The Bible is not primarily a book of timeless wisdom, though it contains both of those. And the way in which you unpack that and unmind those truths is by seeing how any passage fits into this overarching narrative. This overarching story, which, which unfolds, as we're seeing, in these sort of four acts. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And we spent the first several weeks looking at creation. And we saw that God created everything, and he created it good. He created it beautiful, and he, he created it with order, and he created humanity to be a part of that. He created us to carry on that responsibility, walking and working with him to bring greater, a greater beauty and order into all of creation. That was creation. But, but then we saw the fall, that humanity rebelled against God. Adam, which his name means ground, it means humanity. It's, it's, it's a word that just means he, he, he represents humanity and what, what he has done has led to our own sin and rebellion against God, and so we've, we've turned away from God. And so then what, what do we see last week? We saw that, that God had a plan to redeem. God has a plan to redeem, to undo what has been done. And what we saw in Genesis 12 is that God calls out a people. God calls out a people, a special people that are special because he calls them, not because there's anything in them that is uniquely special, but just by his grace, he calls them out. He calls out Abraham, and he calls them out, and he says, it's your people, your line, your family will be the means through which all of creation is renewed. You'll be the means through which the curse of Adam will be undone. And so then what we find in the Bible is that the storyline 
focuses in on the, the story of Abraham, right? Zeroes in on this family and this family's line. So then we read about Abraham and, and Isaac and, and Jacob, and Jacob becomes Israel, is renamed Israel. And so then the, the blessing goes to Israel as, again, you are the people, you are the people through whom I will bring renewal to all things. And, and so that, that's what, what goes on in the latter chapters of Genesis, which we're now skipping over. We're going to start moving faster. I know you were wondering. It's taken me about two months to get through like three chapters. You're like, we're, Jesus is going to come back before Kevin finishes this series. But we're going to start moving a little bit faster now, right? So we're done with Genesis. And what happens at the end of Genesis is that, is that uh, Israel, so Abraham's grandson, uh, Israel and his, his, his sons, his 12 sons who become represent and become the 12 tribes of Israel that they go to Egypt and they go to Egypt because there's a famine and Abraham's great-grandson Joseph, he ends up there. That's another great story, which we're going to skip over, but it's okay. You can go back and read it. He ends up being the reason why there's actually food available during this famine. So everybody flocks to Egypt to go there to be provided for. And so Israel and his kids, they all, they all go to Egypt and they're cared for. And that's how Genesis leaves off. And then when we come to the book of Exodus, we're jumping ahead hundreds of years. We're jumping ahead hundreds of years. And so, so now when, 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 when Jacob, when Israel went to Egypt, he had his 12, his kids and, and, and his, you know, 70 some, uh, you know, their kids and all that kind of stuff. Maybe a group of about 70 people, something like that, some estimates like that. But, but now, hundreds of years later here in Egypt, they have become, well, they've become very big, like the size of a nation. And this has started to concern the Egyptians. You see, the Egyptians liked them when they came, especially because Joseph kind of helped save Egypt. But now, hundreds and hundreds of years later, they've gotten big and they've started to grow. And the Egyptians are like, I don't, I don't think we like this. If they get too big, there's going to come that point when they're going to be like, hey, we could be in charge. So, so what do we do? We come to Exodus, and what we discover is that the Egyptians begin to treat them very harshly. The Egyptians put them into slavery, and they, they begin to, to force them to work harder and harder and harder, and, and they treat them well, they, and they end up, they pass an edict that says that, that every, every male, uh, Hebrew male, is to be killed. And so the Israelites are here in Egypt, and, 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 and the, the circumstances that they're in, increasingly, they are getting worse and worse and worse, and they're being more and more oppressed. In other words, God's people are stuck. And so the question that this passage answers is, what does God do? When his people are stuck. What does God do when his people are stuck? Because you see, this this whole story, the story of the Exodus, this becomes paradigmatic for how the people of Israel began to understand who God was. This was foundational to their understanding of who God was. And you find in, in the Psalms, in Psalm 78, it talks about, you know, you need to, you need to remind your children of, of the things of the past. You need to remind your children, children of our God. And, and it talks about the Exodus. It talks about, talks about well, it talks about what happens. I'm not going to tell you. We'll come to that, right? It, so it talks about what happens because they want them to understand that this is paradigmatic for their understanding of who God is. In fact, in other passages in the Bible, they begin to interpret their own experience in light of 
in light of the story of the Exodus, and they even use some of the same language. So, for example, in 1 Samuel 6, 1 Samuel 6, this is much later, 1 Samuel 6, much later, yeah, the, where the Philistines, their enemies at the time, the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, which we'll come to what that is later, but the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, and then it doesn't go well for them. They, they start getting inflicted with all of these plagues and sickness, so they, they finally get rid of it. We're like, we're like this, you know, getting rid of this thing. And so then it finally comes back to the people of Israel. And this, this is what it says here. It says about the Philistines, it says, Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did when he treated them harshly? Did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? You see, they see it in light of the Exodus, that this was paradigmatic for how they understood who God was. Of course, that's what the whole point of the celebration of the Passover is it's a celebration of what God has done. It's a celebration of what God does when his people are stuck. So again, what does this passage in Exodus reveal to us? It shows what does God do when his people are stuck. Let's look here. Let's just kind of walk through this here for a minute, <laughs> beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, here we go. It's it's talking about Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. Uh, It's either exactly the same name or it refers to the region where Mount Sinai is, whatever. But the point here is it's talking about the same place. Mount Sinai, as we'll come to see later, is exactly the place where God reveals himself to Moses again, reveals the Ten Commandments to him. So he's he's in the same place. He's in the same place, and, and the mountain of God, God shows up here. God shows up when he delivers the Ten Commandments. We see actually much later on with, with Elijah. Elijah comes. Uh, Elijah flees from the wicked, uh, uh, wicked queen Jezebel and, and comes, and where does he go, and where does he meet God? You remember this, that famous scene where, where he, he hears God in a whisper? God comes to him in a whisper. Where does that take place? It takes place here on the mountain of God. So this is foreshadowing what is to come. Verse 2, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. I have no idea how to imagine that. You, know, you, you, you try, right? You get, in fact, it requires imagination. What, there's a man in a bush, a flame, and a person, an angel, and a what? You know, what what's going, you know. It's, and, and I think this is intentional. What we need to understand here is when it talks about an angel of the Lord in the, in the Old Testament, when it talks about an angel of the Lord, it, it doesn't just simply mean a messenger. It's a way of talking about God himself. God himself. And so also, the imagery of flame throughout Exodus is an image for the presence of God himself. So, so as, as, one, as one commentator puts it, it seems like really what's going on here is an attempt to describe the indescribable. How do you really describe the presence of God? And I, and I love what C.S. Lewis says about the imagination. He says that God has given us imagination because we need it. If there's any, you know, any hope of us being able to comprehend the bigness and the fullness of God. And so this is just trying to get at something that is ultimately indescribable. God reveals himself to Moses here. So Moses, <clears throat> see, so Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight why the bush does not burn up. 
uh, when the Lord saw that he had, this is a little, I don't know if this is meant to be kind of humorous. I just think of, you know, like a kid looking at an, out, an outlet. Oh, I wonder if I should go touch that. You know, I don't know. Anyway, so Moses goes over, and I will see this strange sight, why this bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Here we are, verse 5. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, what's interesting is that this is the, this is the first time in the Bible where we see this word holy, the Hebrew word kadesh. First time here using adjectivally, it's the first time it's used in the Bible. Its verbal counterpart is used once early on in Genesis, and there it's used when it talks about how God, after God created, he says on the seventh day, he blessed the seventh day and made it holy. That day was made holy. But this is the first time in the Bible when this word is used to talk about a place, a specific place. It's interesting. It's interesting, why do I think that might be? Well, I think, remember, we've got to understand what has happened as we've looked at the story, as we've seen the story unfold. Because what's interesting is you don't really see, here he's warning Moses, like, you better not come too close, you better not come too close. And you don't see that same kind of language nearly as strongly in Genesis. In general, it's just not nearly as strong. I mean, even after the fall, certainly with, with, uh, with Adam, you know, they walk in the garden, they're with them, and... And then even after that, even after the fall, it's not quite as, quite as strong. And I think perhaps what's going on here is if you remember what we've seen, and that is that with, with each generation after Adam, they seem to be getting farther and farther away from God. That, that the ground gets cursed more and more with each generation. There's this, this sense in which the, the rebellion against God is growing and growing and growing and growing, and the gap is getting wider and wider and wider and wider and wider, and wider. And, and so the, the Hebrew word, Kadesh, holy, literally means to be set apart. God is set apart. He's, he's different from, from what's happening is that there's this gap growing between the creator and his creation, and so he's becoming more and more set apart. And now we come to this point, and now the gap is really big to the point where it's, it's, it's almost dangerous to be near, a little bit like if you've ever gone scuba diving. You know, if you, if you go scuba diving and you go just a few feet underwater, uh, you can come right back up and breathe. It's no big deal. That's no problem. But if you, the deeper you go down, you go down 30 meters, 50 meters, 100 meters, two, I don't know how far you can go down. You go down hundreds and hundreds of meters. You know, you can't just come right back up. Because the difference in air pressure, water pressure, head pressure, I don't really know what it is. Whatever it is, the difference is, and if you just come up, I think like your head explodes or something like that. I don't, I don't know. But apparently it's really not good because, because the gap has gotten too wide. And in the same sense, because of our rebellion, this gap has gotten so far that, that now it's, 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 it, God is almost too real. We've become almost too un, unreal, in a sense, compared to God, that it's almost, it's almost dangerous to just close that gap. And so Moses is afraid. He's, he's afraid, and that's the, right, that's the right sense here, right? Sort of reverence and holiness. So, oh, uh, there's a gap, there's a distance, and, and I should be afraid. And what I love about this is that at the very point in the Bible where it suggests to us that we should be afraid of God, 
one of the first times when it really suggests you should be afraid of God. The very next thing God suggests is, you know, you don't need to be afraid. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So here we see, first of all, what does God do? When his people are stuck, God sees, God hears, and God cares that you are stuck. My father became a a Christian later on in life, and he shared with me a really profound moment for him later in life when he, he marks as one of these moments that started to draw him towards God. And I can't, I can't remember exactly what the health issue was that he was facing at the time, but, but he, he had to go to the hospital, had to go to the doctor, and I, I think he was actually getting an MRI done. He was actually in, right, the, the tube. He was like in the tube. So he was stuck in a number of different ways. I mean, he was stuck... wondering what's going on with my health, but he was also literally stuck. And he said, in the MR, in in that place, he felt a profound sense of peace that he had never experienced before. Because you see, God sees, God hears, and God cares when you are stuck. Several years ago, I got a call that one of our longtime members, Maddie Ciccarella, was, was about to pass away. She had been struggling with cancer for quite some time. She was in the hospital. We knew that it was coming. So I went to the hospital and gathered around with about 10 or 15 other members from our church. She was older, and, and so much of her family had passed away or had moved away. And so she didn't have a lot of her family. She had some of her family there, but she also had her church family. And, and her church family, we, we gathered around, and we held hands, and we prayed. And during just the five minutes, five minutes in which we were praying, we heard the machines beep, telling us that she had breathed her last breath. And it was a holy moment. It was a moment where it would perhaps have been appropriate to remove your sandals. It was, a, it was a holy moment because in that moment, in that moment when Maddie was stuck, she was stuck in the grip of cancer. She was stuck in the grip of death itself. And in that moment, God revealed that he sees you, he hears you, and he cares. I don't know what you're in. I don't know what you're going through right now. But I want you to know, whatever it is, God sees, God hears, and God cares that you are stuck. But it goes beyond that. When we're stuck, God does more than just see 
and hear and care. What does he do for the Israelites? They're, they're stuck. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Great job on that, babe, by the way. You nailed this. When God's people are stuck, the very heart of who our God is is that he is a God who rescues us. And this is revealed, actually, when we, when we look at the whole discussion of, of his name. Get into this conversation about his name. Moses asks him about, you know, what, what is your name? And, and when, when he's asking what his name is, we've got to understand there's, there's something going on here. In the ancient, ancient world, names communicated something about the essence of a person or a God. So when you would ask him about the name, when he's asking about the name, he's also asking, you know, what kind of a God are you? How do I describe, you know, what you are? You know, are you like the God of the rain? You know, the, I don't know, the, the, the God of, of partying? You know, I mean, they had gods like this, right? You know, what kind of, what kind of God are you? In, in your essence, what are you like? And so, so what, is, what does he say? Well, it's interesting, right? He says, God said to Moses, no, so he says, what is his name, and what shall I tell them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am sent me to you. Huh? I am? I, I mean, can you, can, you, you know, can you be a little bit less vague than that? But the point is, this is intentionally vague. Why? Because you see, also when you give a name to something, then you can begin to define it. To name it is to define it. To name it is to sort of put it in a box. And there's a sense in which this is saying, you cannot put God in a box. Even my name, even my name, I, 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 just, I just am. And, and then when it goes on, it says, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the Lord. Here, the Hebrew word there is closely related to the, to the Hebrew word for I am. It's, it's very much related. It's kind of built off of that. As well, and so so it's it's say this is my name I I am now uh, of course what's interesting about this is exactly how do we translate this and this is going to get a little bit philosophical for a minute here but when you translate this there's a couple ways there's several ways in which this could actually be translated it could be translated as I am uh, again going back to the verb I am it, it, it's the the verb I am is is somewhat ambiguous grammatically and it could be translated I am uh, it could also be translated I will be. And it could also be translated, I cause to be what I cause to be. Now, again, I think the ambiguity is, is probably intentional. But if you had to pick something personally, I think I would probably pick, I cause to be what I cause to be. And the reason for that is that I am that I am, it, it sounds, again, it sounds like, you know, this sort of just like timeless God just is, which which. It's true, God is, but that's actually more the way Plato would talk about God than the Bible talks about God. Because once again, what we've seen is that the, the God, what is the Bible? It's not a book of timeless wisdom, it's a story. The very heart of who God is, in his essence, is a God who causes things. Or another way of putting it, one Jewish scholar puts it, puts it this way, says that God's essence is revealed in his God's essence is revealed in his actions. So I think I cause to be what I cause to be might, might be more 
at the heart of this, or, or to put it in the language of our series, just say, who are you? I'm the one writing the story. That's who I am. I'm the one writing the story. What he does reveals his essence. So then this gets back to the question, well, what does God do? At the very heart of who God is, what does God do? And the next 10, 11 chapters tell us who God is. spends a lot of time on it, right? Who is this God? This is the God who saves. This is the God who rescues. He goes back, he says, I'm the God of Abraham, right? I'm the God of Abraham. Remember what that's all about. Because I promised Abraham, I promised that I would protect you. I said, I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. Meaning I will protect you. I will protect you. I will act. I will protect you. So see, that, that's who I am. And, and then he's saying, when he, he reveals this name to them, right? And he's saying, I want them to remember this name forever. And what he's saying is, I want them to remember this name in the context of salvation, in the context of being rescuing, that when they say my name, what they think at the very heart of who this God is, is that he is a God who rescues. Of course, nowhere is this more profoundly revealed to us than in Jesus himself. Jesus comes along and says some pretty strange things. He says, before Abraham was, I am. It's clear, but an incredibly bizarre statement. He's affirming, I am, I am the I am. I am the Lord. And, and, then, and then the apostle Paul, who is as Hebrew as they come, who is as Jewish as they come, and, and knew the, the Hebrew scriptures as well as anybody, he takes the Shema, which was the, the central a central piece of their, of their worldview, of their system, of the way they thought. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the very heart of, of their faith. And what's amazing is he takes the Shema, and in 1 Corinthians 8, he alludes to the Shema. It's clear he's making reference to it, but he puts Jesus right in the middle of it. He puts him right there because he's saying Jesus is the embodiment of the divine name, which is it really one you're supposed to pronounce? It's, they don't even pronounce it. It's unspeakable. You don't say it. That's why you have the word Lord here. Jesus is the Lord. And, and what is at the very heart of who Jesus is? Well, what does his name mean? Jesus' name means to save. The story of Exodus is that God delivers his people when they are stuck. When they are stuck in captivity stuck within the oppression of the Israelites, and God delivers them from that. And the heart of the gospel is that Jesus, Jesus rescues us from the ultimate enemy itself, from sin, from sickness, from death itself. On the cross, on the cross, Jesus shows us that he sees, that he hears, and that he cares The message of the cross is that that Jesus has entered into suffering. Jesus knows what it is that you're going through. There is no other religion, there is no other religion, there is no other God where you see this so clearly that, that, that he has experienced what it means to be stuck. On the cross we see that Jesus sees, he hears, and he cares. And through the resurrection we see that God 
of it. So how many of us here today are stuck? What are you stuck in? Because the heart of the gospel is that our God desires to deliver you from that. When it'll come, the timing, that, that's, that's another whole question. Because actually one of the things that we need to realize here, one of the things we need to understand is that God desires to rescue us. But here's the thing. We've got to be willing to be rescued. We've got to be willing to re- be rescued. And, and the problem with being rescued, the problem with salvation, is that it can be frightening and painful. Salvation can be frightening and painful, and we see that in the story of Israel in, in the Exodus. If we were to read through this, we'd see this. That first of all, they're frightened. Moses comes and says, hey, we're going to get you out of here. We're going to leave Egypt. They're like, what are you talking about? We can't do that. It'll never work. No, 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 let's just stay here. Let's just stay in slavery. This is way too risky. We try to get out. It's just going to get worse. How many of you ever had that thought? Whatever it is that you're stuck in, you're like, it's just better to leave it there. It's better to just stay there because there's no, I mean, the, the thought of trying to get out of that, just it'll never work. It'll just be worse. It's frightening, isn't it? And it's not just frightening. It's painful. So, so even when the Israelites come out and they go through the Red Sea, and they're out of Egypt, and, and then, well, that, well, they don't go straight into the promised land, and they kind of get grumpy about it, and they start to grumble. And they're wandering through the wilderness like, you know, it would be better to just go back. So in the middle of the process of salvation, they start to be like, I think I liked it before salvation started because this is really painful. I think I want to just go back to my sin and my brokenness because this hurts too much. Jesus knows. Jesus knows what it's like to be stuck. That's what the cross is all about. But on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. Friends, we're coming into a new season here. I I know that the calendar year starts in January. Uh, but for many of us, the new season begins in the fall. We kind of go back to school. We come back from break. So this is kind of the beginning of a new season. And my prayer for our church is that this would be a season in which we would really open ourselves up to God's rescuing hand. That we would look at the cross, we would look at the resurrection of Jesus, and we would see that this is a God in whom I can trust. This is a God where I I can be totally open. I can open up the stuff in me. I really believe that there are people probably sitting here in this church that have wounds, things that have been festering for years, decades maybe. And it's just the the more you go by, the more years pass. You know, just, just the harder it gets and the more unlikely it seems like it would be a good idea to address and deal with any of it. This be a season when we open ourselves up to God's rescuing hand because the heart of the gospel is that God sees, hears, cares, and wants to rescue you when you are stuck.
Dear God, Lord, I just praise you for each person that is here this morning. God, I pray that this would be more um, than just a day of religion. God, I pray that we would walk away from here with more than a sense of, I can check the box, I'm a good person because I went to church today. And we would see that there's just so much more that is offered when we put our faith and our trust in you. God, give us the courage. Give us the courage to face the dark things in our lives, the hard things in our lives. And God, may we read these stories. May we continually read and pray over them and meditate over them that our hearts might be more and more filled with the confidence, Lord, that you are a God whom we can trust. Pray this in Jesus' name.